This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the president of South Africa maintains that the recent riots that followed the arrest of former President Jacob Zuma were actually part of an insurrection against the state. And some things seldom change when the two parties switch places in the United States. President Joe Biden is just as hostile to China and Cuba as Donald Trump was. But first, Broward County College in South Florida recently hosted a discussion about the turmoil in Haiti, where the president was assassinated by a mercenary force from Colombia. All the participants in the Broward College talk were Haitian Americans, among them Professor Reginald Darbon and author and activist Pascal Robert, who emphasizes that class is an important part of Haiti's historical dynamic. For me, the most important thing that has to be understanding, has to be understood in terms of the current context of what is going on in Haiti, is that something that is very rarely really effectively explained has to be made clear in the conscious of those who are truly interested in what is best for Haiti and the Haitian people. Oftentimes we get a narrative of the Haitian Revolution as simply a conquest or a battle against of the blacks beating all of the whites and the slave plantation owners and the French. And very recently people began to realize that Haiti beat more than just the French, it was the British and the Spanish as well. But very rarely is there an explanation of the actual complexities of the internal class dynamics that not only had a role in the Haitian Revolution, but also had a role in shaping the, the what would become the Republic of Haiti afterwards. First of all, one of the things that's most important for me to always understand when speaking about Haiti is the proximity of the of Haiti's revolution to the early uh, birth of the United States. When the Haitian Revolution started in 1791, George George Washington was president of the United States. We also have to understand that there were three categories of blacks on the island before the uh, the, the, re the revolution begins in 1791. We had what were called pejoratively the Bosal. These were Africans that were born in Africa that were brought to the island, which means that they were more rebellious, they were less attuned to French culture, and they were more familiar with their various African tribal religions and, ritual and, and, and backgrounds. They made up up to 65 to 70% of the Blacks on the island before the beginning of the Haitian Revolution. Then you had the Creole Blacks who were Blacks born on the island. These, these Blacks were more attenuated to the French culture, to the French language. Some of them were free before the revolution, like Toussaint Louverture, who actually owned slaves. Some of them owned Bosal African slaves. And some of them were slaves like Dessalines up until the beginning of the Haitian Revolution. Then you had the biracial or mixed race Blacks, what we in Haiti called the mulatto. I know that term is out of favor nowadays, but that's really the only way we explain them in the Haitian context. The mulatto uh, uh, Creoles were born on the island. They were mixed race between the French and the African. And at one point, they owned 25% of the African slaves on the island. 
So you, before the Haitian Revolution, when you have pre-revolutionary Haiti, Saint-Domingue, you have three categories of Blacks, all of which are basically in contest with each other. The, the Creole Blacks did not like the Creole mulattoes because often the Creole mulattoes wanted to be white and chose to inure themselves closer to their white patriarchs in the French language. The, the Creole mulattoes did not like the Creole Blacks because they thought they were better than them because they were Black and they, were not, they didn't have their class standing. And both the Creole Blacks and the Creole mulattoes despised the Africans because they thought they were savages and beneath them. And they basically literally oftentimes treated them as slaves or owned them as slaves. This class conflict plagues Haitian society to this day. And very few people are willing to be intellectually honest about that. The revolution begins with, as we know in Haiti, as in Haitian law, ceremony, which is a, a spiritual pact that the Haitian, uh, uh, Haitian African slaves, someone Muslim, someone voodoo animist, do in August of, of uh, 1791, and a week later, they start ravaging the plantations to the point where the French are in jeopardy of losing the island. Spain comes in, trains the high-ranking Black Creoles to fight for Spain because Spain wants to take the island from France, and they are, right, they are fighting as Spanish soldiers against the French. Because the French are afraid of losing the island, they come in and tell the Blacks, and the, and, and the uh, mulattoes who are more culturally attenuated to the French that will free you if you fight for France against the Spanish. So those same blacks now become generals and soldiers of the French army and kick out the Spanish. The Spanish are out. The blacks believe that they are now good because they're going to be treated as Frenchmen. Guess what? The British come in and try to keep because they believe they can kick out the French and put the blacks back in shackles. The blacks fighting under the under France now kick out the British. They believe that now they're going to be on the top of the island because now they're being respected as Frenchmen. Napoleon takes over the over control of France and he says, put all these blacks in shackles, take off the epaulets of all of them and put them under our thumb or genocide the whole country. They come in, Dessalines takes over as, uh, as Toussaint Overture is captured and taken to France. And with the might of, of bringing together the mulattoes, the Africans, and the Creole blacks at the Treaty of Akai, Akaya, they come together and they kick out Napoleon and save the United States from being conquered by Napoleon's army and basically create the Republic of Haiti. After Napoleon, who was assassinated because he wants to do land reform, dies in 1806 and is killed by mulatto creoles and black creoles because they want to keep their land share of the property. Basically, the Bosal are treated as indentured servants almost in perpetuity in the north. And the Creole mulattoes and the Creole blacks go to, go to war against, against each other, creating the Republic of the North, the, the, the Kingdom of the North and the Kingdom of the South. And everything that happens in Haiti from then on is a consequence of the assassination of Dessalines and the inability to empower those African peasants who did not get any wealth as a result of fighting in the revolution, who became the 70% of Haitians who are poor to this day. And until we address those class conflicts, which is where we now have, we now have an elite who are for people who are not even originally Haitian, they're mostly Syrians, Arabs, Lebanese, 
Europeans, German descendants who control over 90% of the Haitian economy. They make up the Haitian oligarchy, who I personally believe had a significant role in Jovenel Moise's assassination. They work in the, in, the, in the pockets of the State Department, plotting coup d'etats, kidnappings, and so on and so forth. Unless we neutralize the Haitian oligarchy, nothing will ever change in Haiti. And unless we change and neutralize this class antagonism, nothing will ever change in Haiti. Does the Haitian diaspora see things the same way when it comes to creating a great political order on the island? Last, is the problem more internal than external, structural or cultural? What is it truly? But the larger impediment to Haitian po political autonomy is the rather oppressive relationship it has with the international community and particularly the United States. What you have to understand is that since the U.S. occupation of 1915 to 1934, when the U.S. basically came in and, you know, emptied Haitians, Haiti's coffers for various intrigue, fear of competition with the Germans who were doing business with Haiti to protect the U.S. interests in the Panama Canal and, and also uh, help siphon off the money that we were paying in repatriation to the French. From that period of time, from 1915 to 1934, any, every time after that, the United States basically had the green light decision and who would be Haiti's president. And if it was a president that did not fit the particular needs of the United States, he would be removed. Like President Estime in 1950, who was removed because he was thought to be a quote-unquote soft socialist because he wanted to increase the minimum wage. Like Aristide was removed because he was considered to be a quote-unquote soft socialist because he wanted to increase the minimum wage. So anytime we've had a president that actually the people found some benefit in, that, you, that tried to do a modicum of adjustment to benefit the, the super majority of Haitians who come from that bossile African class that I discussed in my presentation, who are poor, the United States has stepped in to hit them with a coup that has been conspired with those same oligarchical elites, particularly mm -hmm. the current manifestation of them, who wants to make sure that the majority of Haitians who are basically poor people are ground to dust. As far as the diaspora, it's the sad reality of the Haitian diaspora is that many, some of them can maintain the same class perspective. If they were Haitian middle class or petite bourgeois, they had that worldview when they come to America. Many of them supported the coup to take out Aristide. So unfortunately, the class position of who you are in the Haitian diaspora may also determine what your politics are vis-a-vis -vis what you want to see in the Haitian vision. Yet sadly, because many of them live in the West and capitalist countries, they still want to replicate the capitalist development model of what's good for Haiti. Hotels, I want to go on the beach, I want to come to Haiti, As a, even though I come from the peasant class, now that I'm middle class, I want to go there and have my Lestavec born servants that I don't pay, shine my shoes and do whatever. So unfortunately, the capitalist realism of the Western countries they live in wants them to go back to Haiti and replicate the same vile class hierarchy that's, that's grounding the, the country to powder because they've been more inured with that capitalist realism living in the West. So even that presents a contradiction and a problem for the development of the country. And these are complicated issues that some would say can only be solved with a Haitian Revolution 2.0. I wish I could be saying I'm not necessarily in disagreement with that. I actually am not, because these 
problems are long and they are definitely, definitely ingrained in the social fabric and cultural fabric of Haitian society. That was author and activist Pascal Robert speaking at Broward College in South Florida. The continuity of U.S. foreign policy, even as the Democrats and Republicans trade places in the White House, is quite amazing. Although Democrats portrayed President Donald Trump as representing everything they opposed, when Joe Biden took control of the Oval Office, he left Trump's moves against China and Cuba intact, virtually unchanged. That subject was explored by Sean Blackman of Sputnik Radio's By Any Means Necessary in an interview with Netfa Freeman of the Black Alliance for Peace. As we speak right now, Nefa, Democratic U.S. President Joseph Robinette Biden is giving a speech on voting rights here in the United States. I'm looking at some updates and he said, quote, some things in America should be simple and straightforward. Perhaps the most important of those things, the most fundamental of those things is the right to vote, the right to vote freely, the right to vote fairly, the right to have your vote counted. The democratic threshold is liberty. With it, anything is possible. Without it, nothing, nothing. Adding that this, speaking of voting rights, is a test of our time. And um, this is coming, of course, as, you know, Republicans are trying to roll back voting rights uh, uh, really all across the country. Uh, we've mentioned on the show, uh, Republicans very aware that uh, the more access people have to voting, the worse that they tend to do. And this is also coming amongst news that Hervis Rogers, the man who was all over the news because he stood in line for hours to vote in the past the presidential election was actually arrested because he voted while on parole. And in states like uh, Texas, if you quote unquote knowingly uh, vote uh, while you're uh, still serving a sentence or on parole, then uh, that that's considered a second degree felony, which is punishable with a minimum of two years in prison and a maximum of 20 years. And um, th this is, uh, you know, pretty ridiculous. I mean, the fact that he like literally went on national, really international uh, news and said, yeah, I'm going to vote, I think would imply that, you know, he was not, <clears throat> you know, knowingly breaking any law. But what I really want to get to, Nefa, is the hypocrisy of the United States. Because not only does this country portray itself to the world as the paragon of democracy and such things, it is at this very moment encouraging counter-revolutionary protest in uh, Cuba over the issue of quote-unquote democracy or supposedly human rights, similar to what we hear the United States say in uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua, and China, and so on. And so, you know, it's it's very convenient, I think, Nefa, that uh, the United States government seems to be so concerned about democracy and human rights in, in countries uh, where the governments uh, aren't in line with that of Washington and where they want to carry out regime change. 
but something that's considered a fundamental democratic right here in the United States, like uh, of the right to vote. I mean, there was a whole <clears throat> civil rights movement. I mean, people were, were bloodied, battered, and killed just over the right to vote. And yet here in the 21st century, this is still a, a such an issue. And so I think what it shows, not only the hypocrisy of this government and its system, Nefa, but also the fact that in reality, liberal U.S. democracy is not as advanced as it think it is, as it thinks it is, and is certainly not this shining light on the hill that uh, all other nations should bask in the glow of. No, I mean everything you said is absolutely right and, and on point. I, I just, it's really. There's so much to say about the hypocrisies and contradictions around the democracy in this country and how it's generally used. A lot of it is leveled at the is is um, I guess induced or whatever you want to call it, imposed at the level of propaganda and misinformation about what democracy is. Because in this country, they reduce it to a vote for one thing. It's reduced to a vote. It's not reduced to information. It's not shown in terms of how people should be able to also have the right to uh, even vote on policy and not just for representatives. Um, and it's also not, um, not I mean, because you mentioned two things. One, you mentioned here in, in domestically how it manifests itself, and then also internationally, the contradictions and hypocrisy internationally. So domestically, um, it manifests itself through the fact that uh, there is really basically what, what um, some refer to as a uh, democratic fascism in this country. Mm. So it's the democracy for the bourgeoisie. Really, the, you know, we all know, it's no secret that um, the candidates are chosen by the ruling class and the people with money, and that then when it comes to being on the policies that are passed by the legislators, that, the, that the, those who have money are the ones who do the lobbyists and, and read the, the palms and, and hobnob with the policymakers. None of the policies are really emanate from the people or are really in our best interest, but they can dupe us to make us think that some of these things are. So right now you mentioned the, the battle between the Republicans and Democrats jockeying for, for power over this country, but at the same time there's some really horrendous things that go on in terms of disenfranchising people from the right, just the simple right to vote, now, let alone the fact that we don't have the right to national referendum in this country. Other, other countries, some countries do. They have the right to national referendums. We're not, we're not just voting for people to represent us and, and make policy, but actually we're voting for the policies ourselves. People have, can vote for the policies ourselves. The U.S. people don't have that. But um, in Georgia recently, now this goes to the a lot of the what Biden was talking about and the moves by a lot of Republicans to disenfranchise people from uh, the right to vote in many states. But one thing they didn't talk about just prior to this election is in Georgia, and mostly this was discovered by the this organization Black Vote Matters, Black, Black Vote Matters, I think, Black Votes Matter, and was that, um, and also the, the uh, their journalist, um, Gosh, I can't remember his name now. But uh, Greg Palast. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and he that they discovered a hundred about like one hundred and seventy-five thousand people were scrubbed from the voting rolls in Georgia. Right? You would think that would be national corporate media news, right? Mainstream news, but they're fighting to discover, and they don't even know why. I mean, it's just completely gone. Right? So we're not even talking about some, you know, where they. We're not talking about an incidents where. 
people were just being disenfranchised, but they were just they taken off the rolls so they could not even vote. Now, let's get back to the, also the example that you gave about uh, people who are being prosecuted for trying to vote because they have a criminal record or whatever. They're not supposed, they're not supposed to be eligible to vote. Now, let's not, you know, let's get past the fact that whether it's legal or not for them to do so or whatever. Let's just get to the moral, uh, you know, reason, whatever, you know, the, the rationale for denying people the right to vote because they have a criminal record. I mean, what purpose does that actually serve except to make sure that a certain, uh, I guess, a certain perspective or a certain, you know, uh, yeah, a certain perspective or a certain interest are, aren't able to weigh in on the policies that affect this, you know, the country and the, and, and the government. Now, in some countries, like, for example, we had to take Cuba, they do have also rules, uh, laws that, take away people's right to vote if they're incarcerated but those laws only and i'm not you know i'm not arguing that this is right or wrong because you know that's not the point but though for them the the laws only apply while the person's incarcerated after they're released all of those rights are reinstated and then they can vote now of course we just need to also mention cuba them talking about how cuba is not this democracy and they make this comparison of a democracy versus uh generally ideas generally democracy versus authoritarian governments right when they say democracy when you, when you hear the ruling classes and the main corporate media mention democracy when they other democracy they're generally talking about capitalist countries that that's what qualifies you as a free market also and then they mixed in the whole thing about the vote uh also um but it's and it's only about the vote to, for representatives you know and only representatives of the Republican or Democratic Party, because this country, I mean, the, the actual powers that be do everything they can to uh, marginalize and sideline any other party that's not the Republican or Democratic Party. I mean, that, this bastion of democracy has done so much to um, even disenfranchise and, and like like the Green Party, for example, and, and that's the main one because I, I think it's the more more formidable of the other parties that here where they refer to this country as a two party. It's a two party state, right? And then some would say, well, it's really a one party state with just two wings, you know. But there's supposedly other parties that are legally supposedly legally have the right to run in elections, but the, the the two capitalist parties do everything they can to make sure that they're not they're they're inconsequential to what happens, everything that they can, in spite of the fact that, you know, uh, many people want to have third parties and, and the reason why they, you know, a lot of people don't vote for them is just because they don't, you know, they think that their vote won't matter, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with the other countries, when we look at foreign policy, and that's just the kind of trying to scratch the surface here uh, in the domestic, how, how it shows up domestically. Um, and I remember, I always remember this quote from... Um, uh, Imam Sh- Jamil Al-Amin, who's you know, formerly H.R.I. Brown, he was at H.R.I. Brown when he said it. It's an old thing when he was being interviewed. And one of the, it's, he goes in extensively about it, about this issue of, of voting and elections. But one quote that stands out, and I think a lot of people say it, is that if if voting in this country could, you know, make a difference, could actually transform the country for justice, they would make it illegal. So that's what we mean also by the democratic fascism kind of thing. Because right now, this like this, I mean, you know, referring to the, the, the garrison state, the, the police are militarized, everything, you know, they fortify around the, you know, when, when uh, people demonstrate, 
before up the uprisings for George Floyd. You're seeing militarized police with gear and body armor and, you know, and that's what happens when there's elections. They're all around, you know, in terms of the big rallies after the, the inauguration. They're all around. This is, So this is a really, you know, um, militarized country, but it's not seen as that. And so when people demonstrate against, when, when there are workers that want to assert their rights, the police there protect them and protect the uh, the capitalists and whatnot. So there's, you know, and it's, it's become increasingly fascist, but it's not seen as so because of the propaganda and the media does its job to make sure that people think that they have rights uh, in this country and that other countries don't have those rights. So co- country like Cuba, which people do not know, and even Venezuela, mentioned a couple countries, let's say the, the main ones in this hemisphere that the United States is targeting, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, um, have democratic, they have systems that most people have no, have no idea how they operate, but they're considered quote-unquote authoritarian. And because they get that um, labeling, a lot of people would even assume or think that they don't even have elections at all. Some people think you think people Cuba doesn't have elections, and then when they couldn't keep that, you know, thing on, when they couldn't really keep that mis uh, characterization on, then they say, well, their elections aren't fair because it's a one-party state, and you know, and there's only one party, and you kind of just have giving the impression you just have to vote for, you know, which is ridiculous. You just have to vote for this one candidate or something like it's a exercise in futility or something like that. But it's just not. It's not how the system works. It's it's much different than what they're saying, and it's actually more democratic than the United States. I would prefer to say Cuba is. And even, you know, Venezuela, they have elections over, you know, several elections, and they both countries have the right to national referendum where people can actually vote for policies that affect their lives directly. And so, you know, that's just a few of the things. So the other, and then the one part, and I'll end with this because I, I don't want to, there's so much to cover with this issue about democracy in this country, is when we look at places like uh Colombia, Brazil, uh, which is actually they, they're supporting a person who's widely unpopular in Bolsonaro and, and is also up for corruption, you know, charges and all this kind of stuff. They're supporting this person. Haiti, they just installed someone. They installed the person before him, and, and he, was, it was, he wasn't even um, constitutionally, uh, uh, you know, able to, uh, you know, he wasn't constitutionally had the right, constitutionally didn't have the right to, to, be the president, Jovenel Moise, who was just assassinated, and they supported him. Now they installed the, or chose the next person, uh, Joseph, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Lambert? He just, no, no. Um, oh, Claude Joseph. Oh, yeah, Claude Joseph. So, yeah. And and um, and so they just decided, well, this is the person after a few of them were fighting over who's going to take over after Moise was dead. They said, well, we're, you know, the United States and the, and the OES, and then they appointed the person. And so in other words, they just circumvent the democracies of peoples around the world and, and they'll call any place that ha- is able to muster uh, some sense of self-determination and popular, you know, popular uh, resistance and popular uh, participatory democratic approaches in their country and label them authoritarian and make sure we're ignorant. The populace in the United States is ignorant to know what is actually takes place in those countries or even the processes because the, the labels are all that's important. People don't, you know, the, how the process works and what they are, we don't get that kind of uh, information or education in this country. Yeah. And, you know, real quick, you know, you reminded me of um, a quote, by uh, Julius Nyeri of Tanzania when he once said that 
The United States is also a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, mm -hmm. they have two of them. Have <laughs> Jackie Lukman. Yeah, you know, I, I just wanted to point out, Net, for that you would be proud that I have my Paca shirt on today. I just, just so happened, felt like wearing red and said, hey, I'm going to wear the new Paca shirt. And you are, you know, the uh, an organizer for Pan-African Community Action. And what you said about the way we don't understand in this country that we don't actually have a democracy. We don't vote on the policies that um, directly affect our lives. How do you see, you know, understanding that translating into community organizing that, you know, the kind of stuff that PACA, you know, Pan-African Community Action does, uh, you know, involve itself in? Mm -hmm. oh, that's that's a great question. Um, th thanks for asking that. Um, I th one thing that um, on the level that people do have the right to vote on, like policies or in laws, is on the local level. And some states, some states have a referendum, national referendum, but on the local level, most cities have some form of uh, a referendum. And then what's the other uh, initiative, ballot initiative that you can actually vote on if you know how the, the process works? So you're not having to depend or rely on some. A representative politician to implement to pass or rescind something or, or something like that. You can actually organize to do it, and I think um, we have more power on the local levels anyway. Even regardless of what the states can do, I think we need to actually are organizing. It's very essential that people be organized, that the mass of the people be organized in ways that include and are led by the most adversely impacted people, groups of people in. Uh, society. And so we have to build organizations where the most adversely impacted are, are in the forefront, with, that also includes mass political education, collective political education processes in our organizing. And then we need to actually find, uh, educate ourselves and engage the or challenge um, the powers that be in our places with ballot initiatives. Uh, and not so much running candidates for, for office, and that's nothing wrong with doing that either. I, I would I would say that one of the things we should do to also part of your question is to get away from the uh, what can actually be turned into cult of personality or just the individual, you know, uh, the you know the the popular person kind of thing. And that our candidates, when we run, they should be people that are um, fortified and and chosen and in among the ranks of the organized people. In other words, it shouldn't be just some, you know, personality that pops up and says, you know, on themselves and decides their vocation is to be a leader and a politician representing the people, and they want to run and then convince everybody to run and follow them. And we say, oh, that person sounds a bit of a charismatic and they're articulate or whatever, and they're backed by this and that, and we, and we vote for them because they sound like they're saying, no, we want to be organizing ourselves and getting our – and getting our experience in um, in organizing and um, in our organization and our collective uh, the work that we do, we actually uh, choose people among us, and then we have a platform that we all come together and devise. You know, and it's not just something that somebody thinks of by their head, and then we say, "Oh, that sounds good." But we collectively devise a platform that that person is bound and has committed to representing you know, the organization. And even when we do these kind of campaigns, I think the best thing uh, in terms of trying to give, convince the rest of the people uh, to support it with their vote 
is to not talk about this individual because in this country they kind of it's really like a celebrity contest. It's really that's all it is when they have these campaigns. It's a celebrity contest. You want to get people away from that, get people into critical thinking, get people to know that when they're supporting, you're voting for a candidate, you're not just voting for a candidate or you're really not voting for a candidate. You're voting for someone who is the spokesperson, not even, you know, like spokesperson is better word than representative, but the spokesperson for an entire, for an organization and a platform. You know, so that I think that's what we need to, you know, put our organizing efforts into. I mean, it sounds a little bit more daunting, and that's why people kind of opt to get that leader. And so it's it's quicker. They think it's a quicker road to some type of redress and some type of, you know, oh, we got this person. They sound good. Let's vote for them. And it's easier to just vote for that person as opposed to actually doing the harder work of joining an organization, you know, rolling your sleeves up, you know, politically getting involved in a political education with other people where we're learning together and then finding out how we can strategically uh, challenge the, the rules and the, the state that supports them. You know, Nepo, we've been talking some on the show about the information warfare <clears throat> that the U.S. government is uh, uh, currently carrying out against uh, uh, Cuba and something that it does, I think, as um, a pretty regular tactic of regime change. And a a part of the false narrative of really the myth-making around Cuba that the United States always likes to portray is that the Cuban people are under siege by uh, the Cuban Communist Party and has been for the 62 years since the triumph of the revolution and um, making it seem as though this is something being forced on them, that there isn't sort of broad support for the government or for socialism. And that this is something that, um, you know, they're just sort of uh, a subject to. And I mean, you're someone who's been in the Cuban solidarity movement for a long time. Um, I think we've both been there in uh, recent years and I, it's it's just not true that uh, the Cuban people don't support the revolution um, or uh, the Cuban government. And it reminds me of things that I, I hear people say, you know, uh, uh, when they've been to Venezuela or when they've been to North Korea or when they've been to China. And people say, oh, well, you just saw what they, meaning the, the big, bad, repressive government, wanted you to see. But I mean, I mean, but just the the. The level of choreography that would have to go into the kinds of, you know, more casual expressions of support uh, uh, for the revolution that you see in Cuba and in these countries, it just makes no sense. And all for apparently the benefit of the gaze of like Westerners or people from the United States. I mean, it, it, it just makes no sense. And so there's been an all out assault on the consciousness of the American people. I think in general, um, you know, we often talk about how Americans are the most propagandized people on this earth, but a a big part of trying to manufacture consent for regime change in Cuba or any other country has to be crafting this thing as though, um, you know, there's just this monstrous, bloodthirsty communist government that is, you know, uh, causing suffering for its people out of, you know, no other reason than out of sheer villainy. You know what I mean? And, you know, just history and just the, the countless people who have gone and, and visited the country and seen for themselves just prove this to be not the case. Yeah, um, it is really. And, and they have to, they 
pour it on when it comes to Cuba because I think Cuba maybe more than any other country that's trying to stand up against imperialism does a has been doing a good job of uh, you know engaging in the battle of ideas um and I think so they pour it on it's just a long standing enemy it's the old, one of the oldest revolutions in I mean it's the oldest socialist revolution in Latin America right in terms of actually achieving socialism and uh, people's power and it remind, what you said reminds me of I mean, when people buy this latest because there's a, a heightened reporting on these unrest that's happening in Cuba right now and that how they're trying to depict it. And it reminds me how people kind of have to, they they require the, the level of propaganda they, they wage against Cuba requires people to surrender like all their common sense. Because it wasn't just before the pandemic, when the beginning of this pandemic, there was a cruise ship, and I can't remember the country that was on, that was, they couldn't dock somewhere, no country would let it dock somewhere because it was infected with, COVID. I think it was Italy, uh, and, and they couldn't dock and uh, because they had infected people there, and the country, it seemed like the, the virus was just kind of incubating on the, on, the, on the ship, right? Cuba allowed that ship to dock. And found a way to, you know, get all those people off the ship and treat them and then get them back to their country, right? Um, and so this is not, this, I mean, common sense would like, it should baffle you if there's a country that's going to do that, that they would turn around and just be repressing their own people. That doesn't really make any sense. And then to go back to what you mentioned, you know, being, having been to Cuba, the kind of things where people say, oh, you, you know, you only saw what they wanted you to see. Well, I mean, I have to admit that when I was there a few times, I've been there, I've been had the privilege or the, the, the fortune to experience May Day there at least twice, right? Twice, maybe more than that. No, more than that, maybe three times. Anyway, yeah, I admit that probably Cubans wanted me to see May Day, right? But it doesn't matter. I mean, there were millions of Cubans in the street you know, supporting the revolution, very proud of Cuba, just millions, like numbers, just, you know, numbers that you just can't make up, right? We saw it with our own eyes. You don't see it here. You don't get to see how the Cubans celebrate May Day with the patriotism and the pride in there, and not just, you know, their, the, the revolution, you know, um, and marching and, and, you know, just partying and not, and they have made it in Havana, but then you have expressions in other places. You can't force people to do that, which I've heard kind of ridiculous things like that before. You force people, not that many people, right? Yeah. Not when you compare it to, you know, the, the, the children in Gaza who are throwing stones at tanks and rockets, you know, so you're going to get, you know, you just can't get people to surrender that kind of, you're really being repressed. They're not going to comply with that and that number. You can't get that. Plus, if you're there, you can also see that there's no, you know, there's no, like, militarized police, you know, at gunpoint with these. I mean, they, you know, some some of them, most of them were like these young children, the marshals to the to the march. They weren't even, uh, they weren't even police, right? And so these are kind of things that if you have an international, when you have these experiences, you could couple them and see why certain things just don't make sense. Now, right now, the other thing is that there's there are some people who are you know dissatisfied. Clearly, these demonstrations uh, show that there's some people who have some issues with what's going on, and they're protesting. We'd be hardcore to actually speak to them directly in an interview, any of them at length. We might get a different point of view. They might not be what they might be. You know, different ones say that they're out there for might be a little bit more nuanced than. I'm just against the Cuban government, right? You know, we hear them say that they, 
you know, have concerns because of the lack of access to the vaccines. And Cuba also has developed quite a number of vaccines, right? You know, I think it's five, at least five vaccines that deal with COVID. And they've been on, you know, they've had a kind of a spike in it. But no one talks about the harshness of the U.S. blockade, the extraterritorial measures that isolate Cuba and make it uh, hard or if not impossible for Cuba to do trade and business and other interactions with not just the United States, but other countries, uh, international firm, uh, other companies uh, around the world. One of the major things about the blockade is it's also denying the access to syringes, which, of course, are necessary if you're going to vaccinate people, right? So they've been able to develop these vaccines, but they've tightened, uh, they're not tightened the blockade, but they've, you know, allowed for Trump's tightening of the blockade to insist or his reversal of, of the Obama-era loosenings to continue. They haven't, I don't think they've loosened any one of them, right? And so they've exacted, so the people get frustrated. That's what sanctions are designed to do and the blockade is designed to do. It's to create frustrations on the ground so, uh, and so they can cause instability so that they have a pretext to to have regime change or if they can just have it from within. And they support, we know that there's U.S. Uh, policies through the National Endowment of Democracy and the U.S. Agency of International Development and these things that are supporting groups on the ground that they claim are quote-unquote independent, but they can't be independent if they're getting their financing and then their directives from the United States government. They're not independent. They just mean they're independent, you know, whatever. They don't, that's, it's just a, a word they throw on them. So they're actually doing everything they can, not just Cuba, but they use, Cuba probably has the most intense of these policies, the most uh, pervasive of these policies, but they do the same policy in terms of undermining and trying to co-opt their citizens and, and and to paying citizens in Venezuela and Nicaragua and Iran and wherever else, wherever they can get away with it, they do this in order to promote regime change. And then accompanying, accompanying that is what you mentioned in terms of the propaganda. So we, they will create, for example, they're showing the demonstrations in Cuba right now. They show the demonstration and then they also, you know, do the angle. Like what did you, I can't remember how the orchestration or whatever you said, how they, you know, how they, cover it and they they have an angle to make sure that it looks like the most more, more as most people as many people that look you know they can make it look like but then they do not cover the demonst the other counter demonstrations of people that are happening also of people supporting cuba now what repressive government do we know where anyone you know where the people are you know uh protesting against their their government and any kind of mass is, is there also some counter demonstration of, like real you know the ruling class is in control and that they have their, you know, arms from, you know, the Western people with bullets and all that. And that the people are still inspired, like, for example, in Colombia, right? They're not, they don't even report Colombia. I mean, people have been in an uprising in Colombia and both Haiti, as we already mentioned, but Colombia, and they've been intact, you know, the, the Colombian police, who they're actually higher, uh, not higher, I'm sorry, but, uh, bringing on in to, quote-unquote, in Haiti to, quote-unquote, investigate what happened there, right? The corrupt Colombian police, you know, that they're using, and they can't even investigate the corruption and the killings that have happened in Colombia. In, in Cuba, we don't hear about them, like, kidnapping people in the night. And, and, you know, this is happening in these other countries, kidnapping people in the night and disappearing them, and, and the, the demonstrations are being sprayed with, you know, weapons with, you know, guns. That's not happening in Cuba. 
right? So, of course, you have unrest. You will have incidents with the police because, I mean, that's just what happened. I mean, you can't, you know, they're going to want to take keep control. But at the same time, the type of repression that they support in other countries is not happening in the countries that, that get all this line, that, that all this spotlight from the corporate media. Definitely. And uh, we have a caller on the line here, Comrade from D.C. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi, uh, this is Comrade from Washington, D.C. I just had a question for Netfa Freeman. He, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are now raising up the question of, you know, China's not really socialist in, in like the light of Cuba's um, uh, protest and uh, people's supposed concern for the protesters. But uh, people are now saying, well, you know, China is not socialist, and look at what happened with Tiananmen Square. You know, we need to be more nuanced about it. And, you know, I, I just think that it's uh, none of anybody, if you're living in the United States, it's none of your business if people are protesting inside of other countries, whether they're socialist or capitalist or whatever. But it is people's business inside the United States to oppose U.S. imperialism, which is trying to destroy these economies. Uh, preventing people from uh, fully accessing their health, their well-being, their education. And um, these are all countries that refuse to bow to the United States. So uh, a lot of these people just end up being squarely in support of the United States as a consequence of trying to make these like, nuanced kind of um, distinctions. And, um, yeah, um, it, you know, going so far as to calling them, like, you know, state capitalists and whatnot, so um, I was just curious about Netflix's uh, take on that. Thanks a lot, Comrade. Really appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, we were actually talking about this earlier in the show, Netflix. I mean, unfortunately, far too many of us uh, got more nuance than we got good sense. But but your take on our caller here? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think the, the caller makes a great point. Um, I think that also there's a low level of – I, I don't want to – sound dismissive of people but i think there there's a lot more political education that people need to have i do think that if you're in the united states the first position that we should have as the caller said is anti-imperialism in other words the united states just doesn't have any business um trying to you know overthrow other countries and trying to dictate to other countries and right now we're seeing in the media all this Chinese propaganda is saying propaganda against China is saying that the Chinese China is trying to uh, you know interfere in U.S. elections and you know, interfere in the U.S. in certain ways. What was the like? Are you saying some kind of cyber uh, uh, activities, uh, cyber attacks, and things like that, which they level against you know countries that they. But the United States has been in the business of doing all these. And the cyber attacks are relatively, I guess, a new phenomenon. But the United States has been in the business of trying to sabotage other countries, particularly even China and Russia, for a very long time. You know, it goes back. Now, the question of whether China is um, really capitalist, and I mean, that's a that's not one. <laughs> I think that the um, what people are what people are doing with is the um how can I the economic um superiority can I use that word of China in terms of its investments and its industries and whatnot now socialism really is character and i am not an expert on on Chinese economy, so I don't really but socialism by its very nature by its definition is um a transition from capitalism right. 
And so it's not like that there. So a lot of times people conflate communism and socialism. Um, and socialism basically means that there are state regulations that the state um, has a say in how they, a planned economy. So they have planned economy, and China has that. So And that's actually why they can actually uh, be very um, successful in a lot of other things, like, for example, getting this pandemic underway and developing vaccines and, and helping uh, build infrastructure in other countries or have investing in infrastructure in other countries and of course there might there's a foreign policy its own foreign policy uh objectives that it has and and i'm not trying to you know say that they're doing these things out of the the goodness of their own of, of a heart or anything but we know the politics doesn't have you know feelings that way right so there's political it but it's not militarizing the world like the, the western countries are france and the united states uh asserting their uh asserting a dominance or influence by militarization coming right out of being formal colonizing, you know, common, not form, they're formal, not only formal colonizing entities, but uh, presently and currently neo-colonizing entities, meaning uh, wanting to hold on to the complete uh, plunder and rape uh, of the former colonies, whereas China's relationships are bilateral relationships. And that if people, you know, if the people and the, the fact, if in fact, those relationships are tilted and more to the benefit of China, then we need to be looking at the uh, the leadership in those countries that is not uh, negotiating on uh, in the well, uh, better deals or better you know relations for the benefit of their populace. So, like for example, in Africa, we look at people talk about Africa and Chinese in Africa, um, and uh, often they bring this up as a response to us talking about the United States in Africa, whether it's AFRICOM, what about China? Well, I mean, one, U.S. imperialism and its militarism is a lethal and fatal thing that we have to take a stand against. And China just doesn't have that kind of relationship or presence on the African continent. And if people, and if we want to uh, have any kind of, if we're concerned about the relationship or the type of trade relations that, that China has, with Africa, then we need to be concerned with comprador governments, you know, because that's really what that is. So, so they, they comprador governments, any governments, they have the ability to negotiate or work whatever kind of relations they can with China because China's not imposing them on them through gunboat diplomacy as, as the Western countries use. And so, anyway, I, I, I don't want to go on too long just in case there's any, but those, that's my initial things is that, you know, China has a socialist economy because it's planned. Um, even though they might have private companies that those exist in socialist countries. That was Netfa Freeman of the Black Alliance for Peace on Sputnik Radios by Any Means Necessary with Sean Blackman and Jacqueline Lukman. When former South African President Jacob Zuma was arrested on corruption charges, thousands of his followers rioted and looted in two African provinces last week. President Cyril Ramaphosa claimed the disturbances amounted to an attempted insurrection against the state. To dig deeper into this story, Press TV spoke to Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Detroit-based Pan-African News Wire. It's a very unfortunate situation uh, that is going on. Uh, the former president, Jacob Zuma, has contributed immensely uh, to the national liberation struggle in South Africa. Unfortunately, uh, due to the factional differences within the African National Congress, the ruling party, 
there has been a lot of uh, turmoil. Now, he refused uh, to continue to participate in the so-called Zondo Commission that is looking into the issues of state capture and corruption in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, he got up and walked away uh, from the commission. Uh, when he was uh, subpoenaed, uh, he refused to return. Uh, so the Constitutional Court made a decision uh, that he was in contempt and sentenced him to uh, approximately a year and a half uh, in jail. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, this has happened. Uh, but the people who are supporting him, uh, for example, Carl Nihas and others, uh, who, have, who you know we've had a lot of respect for over the years, uh, this is no way uh, to address the current political differences. Uh, for example, South Africa has the worst COVID-19 pandemic right now on the continent. The focus should be on uh, mitigating uh, the COVID-19 spread and not uh, creating a situation uh, where people who are already unemployed, impoverished, are taking uh, out uh, their anger and their desperation against the uh, small business sectors uh, in KwaZulu-Natal and other areas of uh, South Africa. So do you think that this is a combination of uh, what you just stated, uh, the harsh economic conditions that were there and then it got worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic, and also whether um, the party uh, or the power base of uh, um, Jacob Zuma, the KwaZulu-Natal, um, which is said to be his power base, is, according to what's been cited, uh, to have a long history of political violence, if that's true. Uh, the combination of the two maybe perhaps to have led to what we're seeing now um, with deaths, injuries, uh, to have uh, occurred as a result. Yeah, well, the violence that occurred uh, during the 1980s and early 1990s was engineered uh, by the former apartheid regime using the Nkata, so-called Nkata Freedom Movement, uh, to fight against the African National Congress. Zuma and his supporters should be well aware of this. And uh, some of the same elements, uh, we're sure, are fueling uh, the conflict that's going on right now. If I was in a position to advise the former president and his supporters, uh, they should, of course, try to resolve this situation within the legal system. They are the co-architects of the Constitutional Court, of the commission system in the Republic of South Africa. And uh, they could not uh, say, on the one hand, uh, that they created uh, the democratic system that exists now in South Africa. Then, on the other hand, say that they are exempt uh, from the court system and from these investigative uh, commissions uh, that have been uh, enacted in South Africa. There's a serious problem with corruption inside the country. Uh, President Zuma has uh, lawyers. He has political support. Uh, he should have sat up uh, with the uh, commission, answered their questions, whether it took two weeks or a month or several months uh, to avoid uh, this type of uh, unrest inside the country, which can only benefit uh, the enemies of Africa and, and the imperialist system. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.